You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. It's been a very busy week at both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, but we'll start this morning with a focus on the White House. Joining me now, White House reporter for The Washington Post, Tyler Pager. Tyler, welcome to First Look. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Um, is this your debut? I think this is your first time, at least on with me. <laughs> yeah, excited to be here. All right. Um, uh, Tyler, as I'm sure you know, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is in Israel. He's headed to the West Bank uh, today. What's his goal on this trip? Yeah, I think there are a few goals for this trip. Obviously, one of the priorities for the U.S. is the release of more hostages, particularly those uh, at least eight host- American citizens that are still in captivity in Hamas. The president met with some of those relatives this week at the White House, pledging that the U.S. would do everything that it can to try to secure their freedom. But also we heard from the president uh, the sharpest criticism he has had for Israeli leaders warning that their reputation in the global stage was at risk for what he called indiscriminate bombing. So I think, uh, as we heard yesterday from uh, John Kirby at the White House press briefing, Jake Sullivan is in Israel in part to press the Israelis for more details about their plans, how long they they plan to continue uh, this very aggressive phase of of bombing in Gaza, and and what is their plan for after that, and and continue to press them to try to limit the civilian casualties. Obviously, uh, they have not been uh, quite successful in doing so, given the scale of of devastation in Gaza and the number of civilian casualties. But I think that is part of the reason for Jake's visit is to really put pressure um, and ask some tough questions of the Israelis. So how does the White House feel about the fact that so far it seems that um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be ignoring entreaties from the White House, from the president on down to be, as as you quoted the president saying earlier this week, um, uh, to be more judicious in how they're going about things, or as the president said, um, quote, he called it indiscriminate bombing. Yeah, this has been one of the most divisive issues since Biden took office inside the White House, splitting top aides all the way down to junior staffers over how the president has handled this issue. But at the end of the day, the person that really uh, only matters in, in this handling is the president himself. And the president and Benjamin Netanyahu have a long and complicated relationship. Um, Biden has been tough on him throughout uh, his career, and they've had uh, a divides over many policy areas, even before um, the October 7th uh, attacks, um, where Hamas Uh, broke across the border, killing Israelis and taking hostages. Um, And so we can see the evolution of Biden's messaging here on this uh, since October 7th, obviously very closely embraced Israel and Netanyahu in the aftermath. I traveled with him to Israel where he went and stood strong, uh, a sign of support for Israel. Since then, I think Biden has become uh, frustrated that Netanyahu has not listened to him more. Obviously, we are not privy to the the phone calls between them. But uh, according to people I've talked to in the White House, the president has been quite tough in private on Netanyahu, pushing him for more specifics, pushing him to show more restraint. That has not worked as well as the White House would have liked. And clearly across the country, there has been 
quite a number of reactions and protests to the president's strong support of the Netanyahu government. But we've seen the president speak out against some of the more right-wing factions of the Netanyahu government and called on them uh, to make changes. We will see if they're successful in doing so. So far, uh, they have not been able to scale them back. But at the same time, U.S. officials point two successes, the, the pause in fighting that released the hostages, the number of aid trucks that have gone into Gaza. They say they have been critical in making those things happen. We'll see if they're able to get another pause and more hostages released, um, but it remains to be seen if they can do that. Oh, I have so many more questions on this, but we got to talk about the other big story in Washington this week, and that is the haggling um, over in the Senate. Uh, to get a, a deal done. Um, um, it's reported this morning that the Senate will return next week to work on an immigration deal that would unlock aid to Ukraine and Israel. How involved is the White House in getting to this point? Yeah, the White House has been monitoring these talks quite closely, but at the same time, they are keeping their distance in the sense that the president himself has not been directly uh, engaged in the haggling over this deal. Uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters yesterday at the briefing that the president has had calls with leaders of both chambers, uh, but declined to specify who he talked to um, and, and what the, the contents of those conversations were. Key White House advisors like OMB Director Shalonda Young and others have been engaged with Hill leaders as they negotiate, but it really is unclear how close they are to a deal. And of course, if a deal passes the Senate, it faces long odds in the House controlled by Republicans. So the White House is pushing for a deal. Uh, they are monitoring the progress. But at the end of the day, uh, this is something that the Senate uh, and the House have to work out. I think they are holding President Biden back until they feel there is uh, much closer uh, to a deal and he can come in and be a closer of sorts. Um, but it's unclear if if they're even close to that stage at this point. Because hmm, I'm wondering here, how, how much is the, I mean, the president, was it last week or two weeks ago, went out before reporters, it was carried live, and basically said, let's make a deal. I'm willing to negotiate. So how much is he willing to concede on immigration reform in order to get the funding for Ukraine and Israel? Yeah, there's been multiple reports in, in the Washington Post and, and across uh, the Washington media that the White House is willing to concede quite a bit on immigration. We've seen already concerns expressed by some of the progressive members of the Democratic Party warning that they feel the president is conceding too much. But as you said, uh, Jonathan, he he was very clear that he wanted to make a deal. And then this week during his press conference with uh, Zelensky at the White House, once again saying that uh, in Washington deals need compromise and he's willing to negotiate. Um, we'll see whether he can get uh, enough concessions uh, that the Republicans are happy, but keep his party uh, aligned in, in supporting it as well. Tyler, is the White House surprised that Ukrainian President Zelensky's visit this week to Washington seemingly didn't move the needle um, like his previous visit? Yeah, I don't think so. I think they were full, uh, fully aware of the political dynamics on the Hill. House Republicans have been, uh, many House Republicans have been staunchly opposed to any additional Ukraine funding, some even from the beginning, and that's persisted over time. But the reason the president invited Zelensky here to Washington was because they believe he is the best spokesman and salesman for Ukraine. Um, but I think they were, you know, they knew that it's it's a hard lift and it continues to be a hard lift. And as I said earlier, even if they get a deal in the Senate, it still faces long odds in the House and nothing is going to Ukraine unless it passes 
both chambers. Uh, I think the White House knows that and, and is trying to stay optimistic, trying to push and prod, but recognizing the reality that Republicans control the House of Representatives. One more, one more question for you before I have to let you go. On Wednesday, House Republicans formally authorized an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Uh, um, what are the high crimes and misdemeanors uh, and, and how worried is the White House about this? Yeah, House Republicans are trying to link Joe Biden to his son, Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. They have yet to present evidence of, of wrongdoing by the president. And, and, and that is why the White House has largely just been dismissing this impeachment inquiry. In an earlier era of Washington, the House, Rep uh, House of Representatives authorizing an impeachment inquiry would be days long of coverage. But it's just the amount of news going on and the, the way impeachment has been politicized and changed has completely transformed the way that people are paying attention to it. Uh, so the White House continues to point out that the Republicans have no evidence. And one of their strategies is amplifying the voices of Republicans in the House who are saying, we don't see evidence yet. Uh, I think we'll continue to see uh, what the Republicans do as this uh, inquiry moves forward. But for the most part, the White House is ignoring it and dismissing it as as bogus. Tyler Pager, White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much, Jonathan. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. And let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists who's on top, Max Boot and Jennifer, <laughs> Jennifer Rubin. Jennifer, Max, welcome back to First Look. Good to be here. Great. Good to be here, Jonathan. Um, Max, uh, you heard President Biden admonish uh, Israel this week that it was losing public support in its war against Hamas, which is what you wrote in the Washington Post uh, uh, several weeks ago. Could we see an actual break between the United States and Israel? I mean, I don't think there's going to be a massive break because Joe Biden is so instinctively, you know, pro-Zionist, pro-Israel, and he's always made that clear. He's always made clear that he supports Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas. But certainly Netanyahu is playing with fire. He is showing contempt for President Biden. He is showing that he is willing to confront the United States, which is Israel's only true friend in the world, uh, as he did this week when he basically said that uh, he is not going to allow the Palestinian Authority into Gaza, which is exactly what President Biden is asking for. And I think it's the only viable long-term solution in uh, in Gaza. And so Netanyahu seems to be trying to rally the right wing in Israel to stay in power, but at the expense of Israel's relationship with the United States, at the expense of of the international support that Israel desperately needs. So, you know, I, I think Biden will show a lot more patience than, than most other U.S. presidents would. Uh, but at the end of the day, even, you know, Netanyahu is trying even his patience, which is why you're seeing his frustration break out in public. Jennifer, I would love to get your thoughts on this, especially given what Max just said about uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. As uh, Max just said, he's showing contempt for Biden and the United States. How long will Biden and the United States put up with that? Well, there are a few things that are going on that are quite interesting. First of all, as Israel has turned to the south, you have not had reports of massive bombing. Um, and that is because they are fighting now in urban close quarters. And the people I've talked to in Israel uh, and even John Kirby publicly have noted this. So that may, um, although the 
temperature is already very, very high, um, reduce a little bit of the angst uh, about uh, Israel's tactics. The other thing that's going on is that you can begin to hear voices suggesting some other way out. There's a group of some 500 top-level security and uh, national uh, uh, military figures in Israel who have echoed a plan that several weeks ago Michael Oren, the former ambassador to the U.S., made, and that is something short of eradicating Hamas down to the last fighter, that they will reach a point in which it is sort of good enough, and then perhaps negotiate something along the lines that they did in 1982 with Yasser Arafat, where they negotiated his exit and some of his close advisors' exit, and that's the ch chance that we might have to get back our uh, hostages, or as many of the hostages that are alive. Now, we are also learning, of course, that there are many hostages who have been killed. There was just a report uh, today. So it's unclear how many are left and in what condition they are. Um, but I think you're beginning to hear um, these whispers of something other than fighting to the last man. I would also um, indicate that uh, the head of the uh, Israeli milita uh, military, Galan, had conversations back and forth with Jake Sullivan about how long this is going to last. And what was initially reported um, was that Galan said that this is going to be months. But in fact, he later clarified and said, well, we think the intense period of fighting will be about a month, and then there'll be cleanup operations after that. Now, if that's really a viable timeline, if they're only talking about a few more weeks, say to mid or late January, that would go a long way, of course, towards um, making life a lot easier for President Biden um, and reaching some kind of resolution. Max points to the $64,000 question, which is what happens after. Right. Now, the problem with the PA is that the PA right now is moribund. Um, they're corrupt. They have no credibility. Um, they're really incapable of taking this on. So there has to be some transition, but then transition to what? And those discussions are going on now with Jake. Well, that that I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Jennifer, because that was exactly what I was going to ask Max about. Because in your column, um, um, Max, you write that Israel was winning on the battlefield, but does it have a vision of what the post-war reality will look like? In short, is a two-state solution dead? Well, that's I think that is the big question, and Netanyahu has avoided generally talk about what happens in. Uh, in, in Gaza after Hamas. Uh, but this week, he actually said that uh, that Gaza is not going to become Hamasstan. It's also not going to become Fatahstan after Fatah, the, the major party that dominates the uh, the Palestinian Authority. And that, that to me, is, is a very troubling statement, very much at odds with what President Biden and the international community are advocating, because, you know, there is a vast difference between Hamas and Fatah, because, yes, the Palestinian Authority is corrupt and ineffective, but they also work every single day to safeguard Israel. They work with Israeli security forces all the time in the West Bank. And, the re and a lot of the reason why the PA has so little credibility or support among Palestinians is because uh, Israeli leaders, and, and that's principally Netanyahu, have done so much to undermine the PA over the years and to stymie any path to Palestinian statehood. And I think what uh, President Biden is trying to say is that the only viable course forward after Hamas is defeated, assuming it is militarily defeated, is to revive uh, hopes of a of a of a Palestinian state, a two-state solution with Palestinians in charge in both 
uh, Gaza and, and the West Bank. Uh, and that's, I, I don't think there's any real long-term alternative to that, but Netanyahu is rejecting that advice because it's very unpopular with his coalition partners who, who are completely opposed to a Palestinian state. In fact, they want Israel to annex the West Bank, which would be a disaster. And so I think that's, that's setting up the potential clash down the road uh, between the U.S. and Israel, even more than what we've already seen so far. But uh, what is also important to note, what, what's also important is that Netanyahu is very unlikely to survive this. Um, his poll numbers, of course, have just um, absolutely evaporated. And if the elections were held today, um, he would get about 17 seats for his party. So there's a domestic dynamic as well. Um, he presided over the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. So the question is not only what comes next for policy, but what comes next in terms of a governing coalition. And that is very much up in the air. Will it be something headed by uh, Benny Gantz, who's in the opposition right now, former general? Um, will the forces that were out in the street, hundreds of thousands in the pro-democratic movement, uh, transform themselves into some kind of political party. So it is not only a question of what would happen uh, even if Bibi remains in power, but who's going to remain in power and what that policy is going to look like. So I think there are many more questions at this point than, than we have answers. All right, let's switch gears and talk about Ukraine. President Biden discussed his stalled aid package for Ukraine with President Zelensky by his side at the White House this week. Um, he said congressional inaction would be a gift to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Listen. But without supplemental funding, we're rapidly coming to an end of our ability to help Ukraine respond to the urgent operational demands that it has. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. Uh, Max, you wrote a column saying the, refu um, the, the refusal thus far by Congress to authorize aid to Ukraine makes you ashamed to be an American. Explain. Well, you know, the analogy I use, Jonathan, this is exactly like in 1941 saying we're not going to aid Britain in its struggle against Nazis. And oh, by the way, a majority of Republicans in both houses, that was actually the position they took. And so it seems like we are back to this pre-Pearl Harbor isolationist Republican Party, and they're willing to abandon our democratic allies in Ukraine. And if they don't get the aid that we can only we can provide, there will be a lot of dead Ukrainians. And Putin will be a lot closer to achieving his objective of grabbing control of Ukraine. That would be a tragedy and a nightmare for the people of Ukraine, but also for the entire world, because it would be sending a message that aggression pays, the West is weak, and we will not stand up to, to tyrants and, and, and despots. That, that is a catastrophe, and uh, it, that's why it's urgent for Republicans to, in Congress to, to get their act together and to approve this aid for Ukraine. But instead, Republicans are basically engaging in this bait and switch by trying to link two completely unlinked issues, which is aid to Ukraine and dealing with the, with the mess we have at the southern border with our immigration policies. Those issues are not related. Republicans are, are trying to claim they're both about defending the border, defending the borders of Ukraine, defending the borders of the United States. The Mexican army is not invading the United States on its way to Washington to destroy the, the United States. The, the, these situations are not remotely analogous. And, you know, uh, uh, people in Congress have been trying to reach agreement on a major immigration bill for decades, literally decades. So it is deeply disturbing and disingenuous to tie urgently needed aid to Ukraine 
to the long-term imperative to change our immigration laws on which there's very little agreement between Democrats and Republicans. It's basically, a, I, I'm very concerned that this could basically be just an excuse to abandon Ukraine and allow Russia to win. That is exactly, exactly the point I was going to make in this question to you, Jennifer, about how Democratic and Republican presidential administrations have been vexed by immigration reform for at least 20 years, at least 20 years. So is it right that Republicans are demanding immigration reform in exchange for Ukraine aid? And to Max's point, you know, it'll if they don't uh, aid Ukraine, the West will look weak. But I would add that it also showed that democracy isn't viable. That's right. And we already saw in his rant of four hours the other day, Vladimir Putin, um, in essence, almost pre-declared victory. Um, uh, he's anticipating now that the West will fail Ukraine, which is only bolstering morale and boasting uh, hope on the Russian side. So the damage is already being done and supplies are already uh, been reduced uh, for Ukraine. So to hold this up over an issue that Republicans suspect is insoluble and anyway, is really the height of bad faith. Now, I will add that there may be a deal here somewhere. Um, President Biden has been caught in a vice. Uh, on one hand, the left wing of his party doesn't want to do anything on immigration. On the other hand, the southern border is a mess and Republicans are making hay out of it. So if there's a way for Biden to say, well, we're going to spend a whole lot more money here. We may not change policy, but we're going to spend a whole lot more money. Sorry, left wing Republicans. I had to do it to save Ukraine. Maybe there's a deal. Both sides can claim that they were thrown into the briar patch by the other. Republicans, gosh, they had to accept aid to Ukraine in order to get border money. And uh, conversely, Biden says, well, I had to accept money for the border in order to fund Ukraine. Um, but that's a very optimistic take. There's only a flicker of hope that that is going to happen. I will say it was interesting that on the defense authorization bill, which is separate from the supplemental bill, that overwhelmingly it passed, stripping out all of the policy extremism and the abortion issues and all of the cultural nonsense that the Republicans were trying to attach. So that gives me some hope that perhaps um, if they can come up with some monetary formula on immigration, they might be able to reach a deal. But right now it doesn't look bright. And by the way, I criticized Democrats um, back when we had the first budget standoff that they shouldn't have given their votes without a guarantee on Ukraine. And I hope that's not prescient. I hope that um, they will reach a deal. But Republicans were too afraid to shut down the government uh, on the grounds that Ukraine funding wasn't there. And the loser in that deal, the loser in that political bargain may well be Ukraine. Um on your point, Jennifer, about there may be a deal here somewhere, Max, I have a provocative question because the deal we're talking about here isn't just about immigration reform. It's funding Ukraine, Israel, and, and Taiwan. It's the, it's the three. So my provocative question, Max, should the White House tell Senate negotiators to take Israel and Taiwan aid off the table to make it easier to get to yes on a deal that unlocks aid to Ukraine? Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure why taking Israel and Taiwan off the table would make it easier to get to yes, because I think those are the least controversial parts of of the deal. What's what's controversial is that a lot of Republicans are opposed to 
uh, to Ukraine aid. And I mean, there's a, there's a number of Democrats who are opposed to aid to Israel without conditions, but I don't think that's a huge number in either chamber. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that, you know, uh, Taiwan and, and, and Israel are not the holdup here. The holdup is that Republicans, as we've been discussing, have perversely decided to link Ukraine to immigration policy. And, and I think, you know, the ideal way forward would be to break that linkage because this is a relatively recent development. It's not, there's no intrinsic reason why they need to be linked, but Republicans are basically using this, I think, as an excuse to abandon Ukraine. Right, right. And I ask that question because I'm thinking, you know, the overall price tag because that's usually the first safe harbor that they try to go into. It's like, oh, it's it's way too big. It's way too big. Um, let's, in the time that we have left, talk about the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Next year, Jennifer, you had a column this week with a scenario that would shake things up in the race for the, for the um, nomination. What is it? Well, let me preface this by saying the overwhelming likelihood is that Donald <laughs> Trump will get the nomination. Um, right. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, because the Republican Party is now subsumed in this cult of personality, in this authoritarian dystopian nightmare. I think the only person that has even a prayer um, to take him uh, on and to take him down would be Nikki Haley. So how do you get there? You get there by people dropping out or joining forces. I don't think uh, DeSantis is going to make it much beyond uh, Iowa unless he pulls a rabbit out of the hat. He's probably going to be embarrassed there and he may well go by the wayside. So how do you get Nikki Haley? How do you get her numbers up? Well, maybe Chris Christie drops out and takes her role as VP. After all, the VP role is the one that gets to be the attack dog. He's proven to be the most effective attack dog going after um, Donald Trump. And it's not without precedent. If you remember at the end of the 2016 campaign, it was too late. But Carly Fiorona uh, joined on with Ted Cruz as his vice president in an effort to take down Trump. By then, we were into Indiana and it was way too late. But query whether um, had they narrowed the field earlier in 2016. 16, they would have come up um, with enough of the no uh, Trump votes. But as I stress over and over again, in all likelihood, the Republican Party is putting their money on a guy who may well be a convicted felon by the time the 2024 uh, election rolls around. And on that Carly Fiorina, Ted Cruz ticket, uh, you may recall that, that that was one of the most awkward victory poses ever in the history of ever. <laughs> <laughs> in politics. Uh, Max, um, Nikki Haley is rising. I thought Ron DeSantis was supposed to be the guy who was going to be either the Trump alternative or, or take out Trump. Is it is it over for him or does he have a chance, do you think? I mean, I think he's got to do what Jen said, which is pull the rabbit out of the hat. If he wins Iowa in a convincing fashion, maybe he can slingshot into New Hampshire and beyond. But that seems very unlikely. And this is, I think, a fundamentally different scenario from 2016 when we were talking about Donald Trump having roughly a third of the vote, maybe 40 percent of the vote at this stage. And so there was, you know, this theoretical idea that if you could consolidate the race, that most Republicans were against him and therefore you could prevent his nomination. Whereas right now he seems to be over 50 percent. Uh, so I just don't see that lane for an anti-Trump challenger. There's not enough support to consolidate. Republicans seem to be pretty solidly behind Trump. And uh, the fact that 
you know, the, the polls show that Trump is actually beating Biden at this point, I think only confirms uh, that support because it undermines the only real message that I think Haley and DeSantis and others have against Trump, which is to say, hey, we're winners. This guy's going to lose. Well, Trump can point to the polls and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm beating Joe Biden right now. So, you know, we're, we're heading for, you know, what could be the most terrifying election of our lifetime, where the issue on the ballot will be dictatorship versus democracy. And it's by no means clear which one is going to win. Oh, Max, it, it already is the most terrifying election of, of our lifetime. Um, and can you believe January is just a, just a couple weeks away? We're going to find out um, sooner rather than later whether democracy wins out over dictatorship. Jennifer Rubin, Max Sabu, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.